You will get a sentimental feeling when you hear voices singing, let's be jolly, deck the halls with boughs of holly, rocking around the Christmas tree, have a happy holiday, everyone dancing merrily in the new old fashioned Welcome to Sup Media Reviews, the podcast that never needs spoiler alerts because it takes you back in time to relive the nostalgia of classic TV shows and films that you've probably already seen. I'm your host, Kiara, and each week I'll dive into the archives to bring you my take on movies and TV shows from at least 20 years ago. From cult classics to forgotten gems, I'll review them all and give my honest opinion on their impact and whether or not they still hold up today. Join me as we revisit the iconic characters, memorable moments, and timeless themes that made these shows and films so special. So take a break from adulting and get ready for a trip down memory lane with Sup Media Reviews. What's up and happy holidays, Home Slices. Thanks so much for tuning into this super special holiday episode of Sub Media Reviews. I'm your host, Kiera, and I'm excited to present my third original versus sequel review. In this extended episode, we'll compare the first Home Alone movie to Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. This is one of the few film franchises where people generally agree that the sequel is far better than the original. But for this episode, I'm reviewing both movies and giving you my personal perspective. I'll discuss each movie separately, then spend some time comparing the two. So so let's just dive into the first Home Alone. This 1990 film features Macaulay Culkin as Kevin McAllister, Joe Pesci as Harry, Daniel Stern as Marv, and Catherine O'Hara as Kate McAllister. This movie came out the year I was born and I've grown up watching it basically every year for Christmas, okay? So big shout out to Macaulay Culkin for getting his star on the Walk of Fame. I believe it is well-deserved. Here are some fun facts about the movie. Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern felt indifferent about the movie's potential during shooting, so they intentionally gave over-the-top performances, neither of them believing that this movie would become a massive success. Now, the two had been friends since they had both appeared in I'm Dancing As Fast As I Can in 1982 and had great chemistry. Home Alone went on to be entered into the Guinness Book of World Records as the highest box office grossing comedy, grossing over... $475 million worldwide. It's really interesting to me how people who, even people who agree to be in these projects don't really understand or recognize the potential of them. You know, people have varying radars and gauges for what is successful or what will be popular and what won't be. The second fun fact is that Macaulay Culkin's stunt double was a very short 30-year-old man. Macaulay Culkin was only allowed to work on set for five hours a day because of child labor laws. So the crew planned out the scenes around his schedule putting him on camera alone quite a bit. You can spot this short 30-year-old man. Take a look at the movie and tell me when you see him. I saw him when he was like ziplining from the house to the treehouse. Uh, <laughs> that was really the one time where I was like, yeah, this is definitely not Macaulay Culkin. <laughs> the third fun fact is that the concept for this movie originated during the filming of a scene in Uncle Buck from 1989, in which Macaulay Culkin plays a character who interrogates a would-be sitter through the letter opening in the front door. That movie also featured John Candy, who plays Gus Polinski in this film. 
Now I've already reviewed that movie if you want to check it out. So go back and take a look at Uncle Buck, okay? On sub media reviews everywhere. Now if you're interested in learning more about the making of Home Alone, the Netflix docuseries, The Movies That Made Us, has a whole 45 minute episode that goes into detail about all the stuff that went on behind the scenes. So I suggest you check it out. If you want to see Home Alone, you can watch it on Disney Plus, Stars, and DirecTV as of the recording of this episode. Now let's talk about my personal connection. Now I mentioned earlier that I have been watching this movie for years. It's iconic. It's a classic. It's a clear-cut Christmas movie that did a great job of playing up the intelligence of a child as we watch this young boy outsmart two adult burglars. Also, children love being left alone to their own devices. So as a kid, I really identified with the desire to like not have your siblings or parents around to stop you from like exploring like all the nook and crannies of your home. I also identify with there being too many people in a space at once and like wanting to be alone while there's so many people around. And when you're a child and you don't really have a lot of control, it's really difficult to manage that desire. So I really understand his frustrations, particularly in the beginning of the movie when there's like 15 people packed into this house preparing for this trip. Now, I also like that this movie uses classic Christmas songs that I can really get behind. And even the fictional movie Angels with Filthy Faces is really good and I iconic in its own right. It's really saying something about this movie that a fictional movie inside of the real movie is quoted and is iconic. I even have a Christmas sweater that reads Merry Christmas, you filthy animal, which is actually technically from Home Alone too, but you get the gist. The traps, the stunts, and the shenanigans are hilarious. They're a little bit more highbrow than what I would consider slapstick, but I think it's appropriate and entertaining for people of all ages. And I feel like it's just a feel-good movie that seen through the eyes of a kid. And even though Kevin is bad and his parents are negligent, you still find yourself rooting for them and their family at the end of the day. So I'm excited to share my perspective on this movie. So let's get into it. Now the movie opens up and the McAllister family is preparing to spend Christmas in Paris. They have gathered at Kate and Peter's home in a Chicago suburb on the night before their departure. Kate is played by Catherine O'Hara and Peter is played by John Hurd. Now you may recognize Catherine from Schitt's Creek and John Hurd from White Chicks where he played the villain. There are like 15 people in this house, including Harry, who's played by Joe Pesci, who's dressed as a police officer under the guise of checking in on home safety during the holidays. Now, Kate and Peter's youngest son of their five children is Kevin, who is played by Macaulay Culkin. I mean, he's frequently ridiculed by his cousins and his siblings, and particularly his older brother, Buzz. Now, Kevin comes across as being a curious child who's at this really interesting stage of his development. People view him as a nuisance. He gets into things that he shouldn't get into, and he isn't content with being considered a little kid but he still expects people to help him with tasks like packing his own suitcase. So he's in this space of like, I'm old enough to watch scary movies, but I'm too young to pack my own suitcase. And so he's experiencing like this weird stage where he's like in between. I don't know why the theme song to As Told by Jenner Dirt like popped into my head. Till further notice, I'm in between. That's basically where he is in his development. But in this scene, he says, says one of my favorite lines from the movie after his family kind of like is annoyed by him for asking for stuff all the time. He says, when I grow up and get married, I'm living alone, which is actually a concept that's growing more and more popular with married couples, but I won't get into that. <laughs> so we briefly hear about 
their neighbor, old man Marley. He's a little bit older and legend has it he murdered his family and half the neighborhood with a shovel back in 1958. It's a crazy urban legend for a neighborhood, okay? The McAllisters receive $122.50 worth of pizza to their house to feed this massive number of people. But Kevin inadvertently ruins the family dinner after a brief scuffle with Buzz. Now, again, Buzz is his older brother who is a complete butthole and he uses his size and age to bully his siblings, particularly Kevin. So in the middle of cleaning up after this scuffle results in like a few spills on the table, Kevin's airplane ticket is accidentally thrown away and Kate sends Kevin up to the attic as punishment. So the positive side is that he doesn't have to sleep with his bedwetter cousin Fuller, who's played by Kieran Culkin, who is Macaulay's real life brother. Now the negative is that he's sleeping separately from everyone else and they say out of sight, out of mind. (laughs) I also want to point out that I hate Uncle Frank. Uncle Frank is a butthole. He's a cheapskate. He doesn't deserve to be married and I wouldn't be surprised if they had a a continuing storyline where he is divorced. But the thing that I do like about including characters like Buzz and Uncle Frank is that they make the family seem more realistic. But anyway, while Kevin and his mom are, you know, having this disagreement because of him causing all this ruckus, Kevin berates his mother for allowing the family to pick on him and he basically wishes that his family would disappear. He also calls his mother dummy, which would have gotten me knocked out. (laughs) just personally but during the night heavy winds cause a power outage which disables the alarm clocks and causes the family to oversleep so in the confusion and rush to get to the airport the next morning kevin is accidentally left behind while an annoying neighbor child is counted among the group in kevin's stead so this chaotic scene is done really really well and that is also iconic to me but by the time the family leaves for the airport the plane is going to depart in 45 minutes. So with the rush of everything and the miscounting and the fact that his ticket got thrown away, the writer actually really made sure that we knew that there was a legitimate reason for them to leave their child behind, which is something that I like about the movie. They basically closed up all of the kind of loopholes. Now, we also learn while they're preparing to leave for the airport that the power is back on, but the phone lines are going to be down for a few days. Now, that's a little detail I missed before and explains why they just couldn't call the house and reach Kevin. The family ends up making it on the plane at the last minute. The kids are in coach while the parents are in first class. How nice. Like, I don't blame parents who want to have like a little bit of luxury. If your children are little, like, of course, you don't let them sit by themselves on the plane. But if your children are big, like the ones in this movie, go ahead and get your first class on and send the children to the back in gin pop, (laughs) as I call it. (laughs) But anyway, Kevin wakes up to find the house empty, but the family's cars are still in the garage, unaware that they had rented vans to take them to the airport. So he thinks that his wish of his family disappearing has come true. So he's overjoyed with his kind of newfound freedom. Now, when I was younger, I didn't make the connection that Kevin was under the impression that his wish had come true. I just thought he was like, oh, they're gone. Like, I'm just having a good time. But we get this little montage of him doing all the stuff that he can't do while his parents are around. He's jumping on the bed, eating junk food. He's going through Buzz's nudie magazines and his contraband, including some firecrackers and a BB gun. We also see him watch a movie that he's not supposed to watch. It's an old black and white film called Angels with Filthy Faces. Again, it's a fictional movie. It's like an old mob movie. And they have iconic lines in it, one of which is, I'm going to give you to the count of 10 to get your ugly, yellow, no good... (laughs) Keister off my property before I pump your guts full of lead. One, two, 
10. And then he shoots up the person or whatever. And he's like, keep the change, you filthy animal. Now, right then, Kate wakes up on the plane thinking that she forgot something. And it takes her a minute, but she figures out it's Kevin. I love the way she says Kevin. That's also like an iconic scene for me. Kevin, Uncle Frank, is not being a good brother-in-law or uncle while Kate is freaking out about leaving her son behind, especially since they can't get in touch with anyone with the plane up in the air and their home phones out of order. Now, meanwhile, Kevin is having the time of his life sledding from inside the house to outside the house. And then later that night, we see Harry Lime and Marv Merchants, a pair of burglars who kind of go by the moniker, the Wet Bandits. They've been breaking into the homes of folks who are out of town for the holidays. So this is when we find out that Harry, who was posed as a police officer at the beginning of the movie, was actually casing homes to see what kind of travel plans and preventative measures that the families were taking during the holidays. And I'm like, this is a fantastic plan for casing homes, okay? That was very smart. This is probably the smartest thing they did in this movie. We learned from Harry that Kevin's house is actually the crown jewel or as he called it the silver tuna that has all the types of high value or easily resellable items that they're looking to steal so they're particularly excited about kevin's house now the thieves prepare to break in but kevin kind of hears what's going on and tricks them into thinking that his family is still home forcing them to postpone their plans to rob their house now kevin hides under the bed because he's frightened okay like typically if your parents or your siblings are there or whatever like you're chill so kevin hides under the bed and is experiencing what is probably his first time realizing that being on his own can be legit scary and not just like i'm scared of that furnace in the basement scary like it might be an actual threat right so when the McAllister crew arrives in France they start a frantic search for some help okay they try contacting the police but the police are ineffectual they try to call the neighbors that can help them figure out if Kevin is okay but all the neighbors are out of town but when Kevin gets some courage he goes outside and declares that he isn't afraid anymore but then he gets frightened by his next door neighbor old man Marley the serial killer that <laughs> lives next door then we hear his signature scream. I'm not going to do it because I don't have the lung capacity at this age. But the police eventually do stop by to do what we would call a welfare check. But Kevin is too freaked out to answer the door. And because of the holiday season, flights are booked out for the next two days. And Kate and family can't really get back to Kevin in a timely manner. So Kate decides to stay in the airport on standby, hoping that someone will like not show. Do y'all know what standby is? I'm sure y'all know what standby is. My dad used to work for Delta when I was a kid and I was on standby so much, but basically not everybody shows up to get on their flight. So if you're waiting on standby, you're basically like on a wait list to get on a flight. So she is going to hang out and make sure that she is there and present for every flight that's headed back to America because they did go to Paris so that she can get back home as soon as possible. We'll talk a little bit about that later. Anyways, the rest of the family goes to Uncle Rob's house in Paris and Uncle Rob is Peter's brother. So in the next scene, Kevin is enjoying the luxury of adult hygiene products the next morning, including aftershave, which he applies to his face with both hands and give this iconic scream. Ah! <laughs> Again, I can't do it. <laughs> but while trying to get some money for a shopping trip, Kevin destroys a set of shelves in Buzz's room, releasing Buzz's pet tarantula. He fell, of course, and he got the money out of a little container that Buzz was keeping it in. He called it Buzz's life savings. I don't know why that cracked me up, but that was hilarious to me, okay? Also, 
I don't have children right now, but I want my future children to know that we will never have a pet tarantula. Okay. Never. (laughs) Anyways, when he leaves his house, he spots a van in his neighbor's yard. That's the bandits robbing the place. Now, while they're robbing this house, the family receives a voicemail from Peter, letting them know that the family actually made it to France. So the house should be empty later that night. If you remember, Kevin was able to convince them that they might have still been home. So now they have verbal confirmation that the family made it to France and that they can rob the house. So while Kevin is at the store getting a toothbrush, he gets frightened by old man Marley, who has a cut on his hand. And he's so afraid that he runs out of the store without paying for the toothbrush that he has. And he even gets chased by a policeman. Now, this chase scene is really silly, but he ends up escaping and lives to see another day. And he walks home really dejected as he declares himself to be a criminal. (laughs) Now, I think this is another indication of his wish of like his family not being around, not being what he thought it would be. Like his family is gone for like one day and he's already graduated to shoplifting. But at least the kid has a conscience, right? So before leaving the house of Kevin's neighbors, Marv stops up the sink in the house and turns on the water, flooding it, hence the name The Wet Bandits. Now, as they're leaving that house, they almost run over Kevin, but Kevin recognizes Harry's gold tooth from when he was pretending to be a police officer in his house like a day or two before. So Harry picked up on a vibe based on the way Kevin looked at him and decided to follow Kevin, who ends up running to a local church and hiding in a nativity scene, which is an excellent cover up. Okay. Now, Kevin vows that when they come back, he'll be ready. And I was like, okay, he was able to pick up on the fact that these guys were robbers. And I was like, did I miss something? I don't know that I would make a connection. I don't know if I could make that connection being an eight-year-old kid. I feel like that's an astute observation. That's like monk level for a child his age, right? Like he's only eight. So he's in third grade. I feel like that's really smart. I must have missed something, but whatever. I don't know if a regular third grader would put two and two together. But anyways, he stages what looks like a Christmas party with mannequins and a Michael Jordan cutout and ropes and whatnot. And in the background, we hear rocking around the Christmas tree. That is one of my favorite versions of that song. I don't think anybody can do a better version of that song than her or whoever it is that sings that song. I actually don't know. But anyways... The bandits decide to come back later because this house is jumping and popping off. Okay, it's it's a party going on here. So back at Uncle Rob's in Paris, the McAllister crew is like a little bit miserable. Some of them are worried about Kevin or how Kate isn't there celebrating the holidays with them. Uncle Frank is being a horrible house guest and Buzz isn't concerned about Kevin at all, citing that they live a boring life in a safe neighborhood and that Kevin could use some time in the real world. Now, Kevin orders pizza and I want to point out that people keep pulling up to the house hitting this little metal figurine (laughs) and it's pretty funny. It even comes back in the second movie and says, hilarious but the pizza delivery guy goes to the back door as instructed by kevin where he uses phrases from the movie angels with filthy faces to interact with him it's ingenious and it indicates that he might be watching the movie too often i would not know where to start and stop a movie in order to make like the scene make sense okay but anyways he scares the driver away with gunshots but he does pay for his pizza so like i said the kid has a conscience now meanwhile at the airport in france kate is offering 500 dollars two first class tickets a watch a pocket translator earrings and a piece of her soul to an older couple if they'll allow her to take their place on a flight back to america she is really trying to get back home 
We flip back to Kevin, who's looking at a picture of his family and expressing his regrets at wishing they were gone and promises to stop being a pain in the butt. Now, I want to point out that Kevin's older brother, Jeff, is played by Michael C. Morona, who you might remember as Big Pete from the adventures of Pete and Pete on Nickelodeon. I feel like that might be a deep Nickelodeon cut for some of you, but maybe you know what I'm talking about. Maybe. OK, well, it's a new day. And he does the screaming thing again with the aftershave. So that happens again. And he makes a shopping trip to the store. He gets a cart full of stuff and he even has coupons. And his total comes to $19.83. How affordable is that? That shopping cart was full, okay? He got a lot of stuff for $19, okay? So when the cashier questions why he's alone, he kind of masterfully evades her, similar to his inquiry of Shanice in Uncle Buck. And on his way home, his grocery bags, which are obviously filled with empty bottles and boxes, breaks. And I'm like, yeah, this is life. Like, it's not all that it's cracked up to be. Now, at home, he's doing laundry, which I feel like is pretty good for an eight-year-old. And when the furnace that he's historically been afraid of talks to him, he tells to shut up so he's gaining some courage now this is an element of the story that I really had never paid attention to Kevin goes from being this kind of helpless kid who needs someone to help him pack his suitcase to a child protecting his house from home invaders and doing laundry and making grocery runs and he's maturing which again is a piece of the story that I never really thought about or understood and I was like maybe Buzz had a point about Kevin needing some time in the real world to become more independent so I think that's like a really interesting part of the story now Harry and Marv are trying to figure out the deal with the McAllister house so Marv checks out the back door and Kevin turns on angels with filthy faces and puts firecrackers in a pot to mimic the gunshots idiot Marv runs off scared and assumes that some other robber committed a murder in the house Harry thinks they should stick around to see who's in the house just in case the police catch up with them and ask questions. Now, in the meantime, Kate successfully bribed that older couple and ended up making it to Scranton, Pennsylvania, the office, <laughs> and is about to lose it with a ticket agent who isn't empathetic to her needs. So she's overheard by Gus Polinsky, who's played by John Candy, the lead member of a traveling, struggling polka band who offers to let her travel with them to Chicago in a moving van on their way to Milwaukee. So she's happy to join them despite them doing a polka version of Deck the Halls on the ride there. That sounded awful. I know there wasn't no heat in the back of that van or nothing, okay? It just sounds miserable. I don't know how far the drive is from Scranton. You know what? Let's look it up. Okay, how far is the... Y'all, I just looked this up. Why they say that this drive is almost 11 hours? I know they lying. 11 hours in the back of a moving truck with no heat. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh-uh. Ain't no way. Ain't no way. Anyways, on Christmas Eve, Harry and Mar finally realize that Kevin is the only McAllister at home. <laughs> Joe Pesci's character calls him a kindergartner, which is so funny. I don't know why the way he says the word is kindergartner. And he calls him kindergartner. So funny to me. And Kevin overhears them discussing plans to break into the house that night at 9 p.m. Because kids are a scared of the dark. A scared is also very funny. Is this supposed to indicate that they're from somewhere? Is this supposed to be like an accent or dialect that I'm supposed to know? I don't know. I don't know if I can pick up on where they're supposed to be from or whatever, but the way they talk is pretty funny. Kevin starts to miss his family for real, for real, after he knows that he's going to be a victim of a home invasion and asks the local Santa Claus impersonator if he can bring his family back for Christmas and Uncle Frank if he has time. He's like, if, look, Uncle Frank is optional. 
And I do not blame him. He thinks that mall Santa works for the real Santa. And I was like, okay, that's cute. Like he knows that mall Santa ain't real Santa, but that he's one of his agents. I don't know what you would call him. But Santa's car breaks down, which is even funnier. Okay. But on his walk home, he sees people having family gatherings at their home for Christmas Eve. And he just really starts to like yearn for his family back. And so he goes to a local church near his house and watches a choir rehearsal and a fairly empty church. Because if Santa doesn't work, maybe Jesus can fix it. <laughs> that's, that's that's my logic for why he went to the church. But at the church, he re-encounters old man Marley, who disproves the rumors about himself. And it's actually a nice older man. Well, maybe not completely nice because they open up to each other and Kevin admits that he's been a pain and that he loves his family despite not always liking him. But then Marley points out his granddaughter in the choir and mentions that he otherwise would not get to see her since she is the daughter of his estranged son. So I don't know how good Marley, he's not a murderer, but he is estranged from his son. So who knows what that argument was about that caused the divide between him and his family. But Kevin suggests to Marley that he should reconcile with his son with some childlike wisdom about facing his fears. But right as he leaves the church, it's about 8 p.m. and Kevin has to prepare for battle, okay? He has to get ready for these robbers that are coming in to take the stuff in his home. So Kevin returns home and he rigs the house with booby traps. If he did this in an hour, like I think he did, he is very planful and efficient. He even had like a little, little blueprint of all the stuff that he was going to do or whatever. He had a plan. Now, Harry and Marv break in, they spring the traps and they suffer various injuries. A few of my faves include an iconic fall backwards on the slippery stairs on the front stairs of the home. Apparently that is like an iconic stunt. This particular stunt double who did the stunts for Marv actually threw himself back off the stairs even further than like a normal fall to create like some drama or like exaggeration. And that originated in Home Alone, which I think is pretty cool. But there's also a blowtorch to the head. Marv loses his shoes on like the tarred steps in the basement and they're stepping on sharp ornaments. Harry gets feathered. They simultaneously slip on some like Tonka truck toys or whatever. So a lot of the stunts are, are really funny. But while Harry and Marv pursue Kevin around the house, he calls the police and lures the duo into a vacant neighboring house, the Murphy's house that they had previously broken into. Now, I guess he didn't want the cops to know that he was home alone. I'm wondering why he didn't send the cops to his own house but that's the only reason I can come up with Marv almost gets Kevin but Kevin puts a tarantula on Marv's face and Marv's scream is also iconic <laughs> it's a lot of iconic screams in here we have Kevin's iconic scream we have his mom's iconic scream where she says Kevin <laughs> And then we also have Marv's scream, which is hilarious to me. Now, Kevin zip lines from the attic to the treehouse. And this is where you can see the 30-year-old man stunt double. But when he gets to the treehouse, the burglars attempt to follow him using the rope. But of course, Kevin cuts it and they swing into a brick wall. And then Harry and Marv ambush Kevin and prepare to get their revenge. But old man Marley intervenes and knocks them out with a snow shovel. And so the police arrive at the Murphys and arrest Harry and Marv, having identified all the houses that they broke into due to Marv's habit of flooding them. So Kevin watches from his house as they're taken away. And I was like, the whole movie built up to this scene right of him taking on these robbers and the scene was so short I was like the thing that I most remember from the story and it was actually quite short I was surprised at that but it was still very fun to watch 
So Kevin leaves cookies for Santa as his mom talks to Gus about how bad of a parent she is. She's still riding in this truck. Y'all, I didn't know that drive was like 11 hours. I cannot. I cannot believe she was in there for 11. That's dedication. Okay. But to cheer her up and to quell her fears, Gus tells her about how all the guys in the polka band are sucky parents who never see their kids and how he left his kid in a morgue one time and it took his child six to seven weeks for him to start talking again. That was funny, but it's not funny, especially if <laughs> we left our kid in a morgue and he didn't talk for seven weeks. It's again, funny, but not funny. It's particularly funny because I found out in my research that John Candy basically improvised all of his lines. So he came up with that story on the spot. It's actually, that's hilarious. Well, on Christmas Day, Kevin is initially disappointed to find that his family is still gone. So Santa and Jesus let him down, even though he was wishing for his family back. But Kate arrives home and they reconcile. Kate also sees that Kevin even decorated for Christmas. And so the rest of the family returns to the house after waiting in Paris until they could obtain a direct flight to Chicago. So here's the deal. Kate went through all that trouble just to get home five minutes before the rest of the family. <laughs> First off, Kate offered that older couple probably $1,500, maybe, I don't know how much the earrings cost. If the earrings were expensive, and they probably were because of the lifestyle that they were living, because this was a nice house. And apparently she is a fashion designer and the dad is like a successful businessman or whatever. She offered probably close to $5,000 to get on a flight back to America. And then when she was talking to the gate agent, she mentioned that she had flown in from Dallas too and got into Scranton and then drove 11 hours from Scranton to Chicago to come home. And their family just waited for the next flight out and got there five minutes later. I know you was trying to get back to your son and it was important for you to make the effort, especially because the police and stuff weren't helpful. Like I get it, but it sucks that your family literally made it home five minutes after you and all they had to do was wait for the next flight out. I just can't. That's was hilarious to me, okay? But everybody's happy to be home and it's just the nuclear family. The other part of the family, Uncle Frank's family and stuff is not with them. But even Buzz seems to be happy that Kevin is okay. They're all surprised to see that Kevin bought groceries and even fabric softener. And then the weirdest thing happens, okay? When Kevin tells them that he went shopping, his dad is like, what a funny little guy. And I was like, what kind of response is that? What kind of... If my kid told me that they had been home alone for two or three days during the holidays and they went shopping and they, you know, had a history of being like helpless or not independent, I feel like I would be more proud of them. But what a funny little guy is a weird thing to say, okay, in that instance. And then when Kevin describes his time being home alone, he claims he just hung around and everyone laughs. And I was like, what reality is this? What? This is the only part of the movie where I'm like, these people are not in the same conversation or something got cut out or I don't know what it is. If he said, I just hung around and that cause them to laugh or whatever. I don't get it. Okay. Something is messed up with the scene. I don't know. It's weirding me out a little bit, but Kevin keeps silent about his encounter with Harry and Marv. Although Peter does find Harry's knocked out gold tooth in the house. <laughs> so Kevin from the window watches Marley reuniting with his son, daughter-in-law and granddaughter before being yelled at by Buzz for destroying his room. 
And that's the end of the first Home Alone movie, y'all. So here are some of my preliminary thoughts as I'll be sharing more when I compare the two movies later. Is it worth a rewatch and does it hold up today? The answers are yes and yes. This movie, despite being over 30 years old, has aged magnificently. The concept still holds up. There aren't any glaringly offensive themes or jokes. And I believe it still maintains its watchability for people of all age ranges. If nothing else, give it a watch to see how masterfully woven the plot is to justify accidentally leaving a kid at home. There's some tender moments, which I love. And in the end, he learns to be careful what he wishes for, a lesson which I think is interesting and an overlooked facet of this movie that actually is really important to the story. Kevin manages to protect his home, to grow up a little bit, and learn not to judge a book by its cover in a matter of a few days. This story isn't just about a kid who's left in his home. It's about the evolution of his mindset and his belief in his own abilities to look after himself, his home, and his relationships. Now, I always watch it during the holidays, and I can imagine sharing this film with my own children when I have them. So the critics over at Rotten Tomatoes gave this movie a 65%, while the audience gave it 80%. Now, while I enjoyed this film, I'm eager to get into the next one, and then I'll share more thoughts on the ratings. Well, this cat that they're talking about, I wonder who could it be? Cause I know that I'm the heaviest cat, the heaviest cat you ever did see. When you see me walking down the street, when the fellas want to speak, on their faces they wear a silly smirk cause they know I'm the king of the culture. Now let's talk about the 1993 film Home Alone 2 Lost in New York. The movie basically features the same characters with a few new and familiar faces. Macaulay Culkin, Joe Pesci, Daniel Stern, and Catherine O'Hara reprise their roles as Kevin, Harry, Marv, and Kate respectively. We also meet a few more characters like Brenda Fricker as the Pigeon Lady, Tim Curry as the Concierge, and Rob Snyder as the Beltman. Now leaving your child behind one Christmas is an accident, but doing it two times in a row is a pattern. Lots of people think that this movie is the best of the two, and even director Chris Columbus says so. Here's some fun facts about this movie. Macaulay Culkin was paid $4.5 million to star in this movie, the biggest salary ever for an 11-year-old actor. That's a little more than $9.8 million today. Michael Jackson visited Macaulay on the set, but we won't get into that. The second fun fact is that the pigeon attack sequence was filmed on March 25th, 1992. According to Joe Pesci, the crew covered him and Daniel Stern with real birdseed and about 300 pigeons. Daniel Stern said that a pigeon really flew into his mouth and that it was revolting. Gross. I think I would die if a pigeon flew in my mouth, personally. <laughs> The third fun fact is that the talk boy, the tape recorder with which Kevin played in the movie, was a prop created specifically for the film. After the movie became a box office hit, Tiger Electronics created and distributed a real life talk boy along with its pink and purple counterpart, the Tark Girl. It's really interesting to see the how things come about. You know, art inspires life, life inspires art, just goes in a, a circle over and over again. If you want to check out Home Alone 2 Lost in New York, you can watch it on Disney Plus, Stars, and DirecTV as of the recording of this episode. Now let's talk about my personal connection to the second film. Essentially, it's the same as my connection to the first. They both came out very early in my life, so by the time I could really have memories, both of these movies were already holiday favorites. This sequel in particular was like a big 
remake, expanded version of the original movie. A kid being alone in his house is one thing, but being in a new huge place like New York City and having a chance encounter with the two crooks from the first movie is low-key unbelievable. But I'm here for it, okay? We have Angels with Even Filthier Faces, which is the fictional movie sequel, and we have other antagonistic adults who want to harsh Kevin's mellow. And the fact that he's able to fool many of them for as long as he does just plays up his intelligence. On the other hand, we also encounter more older figures who take a liking to Kevin. Now, I would argue that this movie tries to be a little heavier on the feels than the first. So as an empath, I actually like the messages about like kindness. But in this movie, I also feel like they took the stunts and shenanigans up a notch. And now that Kevin is older, we get a more advanced level of mischief. So that's always nice. But I don't want to give away too much more. So let's dive in to Home Alone 2 Lost in New York. It's the following year and the McAllister family is busy packing up and planning to spend Christmas in Miami and the evening before their departure, they all gather at Kate and Peter's home in Winnetka, Illinois. The house is as busy as it was the first time around. Their youngest son, Kevin, views Florida as contradictory to Christmas due to its tropical climate and lack of Christmas trees. We see the famous talk boy that Kevin uses throughout the film and a commercial for the Plaza Hotel. When Kevin's dad tries to charge his camcorder, he unplugs the alarm clock, meaning it will not go off when it's time in the morning. Kevin also repeats an adult joke from his crass uncle Frank, which I did not get until just now. I thought it was very funny. He records his uncle singing Cool Jerk by the Capitals in the bathroom while he's trying to get his tie. And his uncle, in the middle of singing the song, says, get out of here, you nosy little pervert, or I'm going to slap you silly. And of course, that comes back later. But we do get to see Uncle Frank in an embarrassing light. So that's fun. Now, at a school Christmas pageant during Kevin's solo, his older brother instigates and embarrasses him using the fake candles the choir members are holding. I didn't find this particularly funny, but the crowd goes wild with laughter at the shenanigans. Was this funny to y'all? Did it make sense for a crowd full of adults to be laughing at Buzz's behavior? Personally, I don't get it. But an enraged Kevin retaliates on Buzz by pushing him, which causes the entire choir to fall like dominoes, ruining the pageant. Kate screams, Kevin! Despite obviously seeing that Buzz is the one who created the hullabaloo. How is this Kevin's fault? I don't know. I think this scene is to demonstrate that Kevin is still the youngest kid. He's still low-key kind of getting into trouble. But why are there no consequences for Buzz? I mean, in my experience, the oldest child is almost always blamed for scuffles between siblings. Back at home, Buzz makes this false apology to Kevin, which the family accepts. But Kevin refuses to apologize for his retaliatory stunt and berates his family for believing Buzz's lies and for wanting to spend Christmas in Florida. He even calls his uncle Frank Mr. Cheapskate. I love that. That was hilarious to me. Now Kevin storms off to the attic and has a little standoff with his mom and eventually wishes to have his own vacation alone without his family who doesn't seem to value him or his word. And I'm like, here you go with the wishes again. You already got your wish last year. You wish they weren't around. And here you are again, a year later, wishing they weren't around again. Okay. Now during the night, we see a newspaper flying in the wind that says that the wet bandits escaped from jail during a prison riot. How fun. 
<laughs> now, the next morning, the family oversleeps and rushes to the airport as they did the previous year. Once more, the house is in chaos as they prepare to leave, but Kevin is with them and he becomes separated from the family while carrying Peter's bag, Peter is his dad, and accidentally boards a flight to New York City. He ends up following a man who was dressed similarly to his dad while he was loading batteries into his talk boy. And then he rushes to the same gate as this man who is dressed like his father, knocking the tickets out of the gate agent's hands. Now, I remember once that I almost followed a man at the San Juan airport because he looked like my dad. So I get it. I know dads can be confusing. <laughs> so on the correct flight to Florida, Kate has that feeling again that they left something. When they get to Miami, it's raining, the weather is awful, and they don't realize that Kevin is gone until they get to baggage claim and no one is there to claim Kevin's bag. So Kate does her classic, Kevin, scream as she faints. Upon arrival, Kevin realizes he's in New York City and decides to tour the city and enjoy his wish because he has his dad's bag, which has all the money in it. He's seeing the sights. He's buying firecrackers. He's relishing being in the big city with his Polaroid camera by himself. And at one point, he's actually on top of one of the Twin Towers taking pictures. I heard that after 9-11, when they showed this film on TV, that they cut out the Twin Tower scene, which is interesting. But now if you watch it, I think that scene is back. But in Miami, Kate and Peter chat with the police and with every question they answer, they sound more and more negligent, even as they're recounting like, oh, this actually happened last year. Yeah, you all sound bad, okay? <laughs> in New York City, we see Marv and Harry who have hitched a ride in a fish packing truck and are free to roam the streets in New York City. They're looking for one big score so they can leave the country now that they're fugitives. Now they are now being called the Sticky Bandits due to a sticky glove that Marv is wearing. And I'm like, why is his hand sticky? Is it made out of tape? I have no idea why his hand was sticky. But on his way to the Plaza Hotel, Kevin encounters an unhoused woman tending to pigeons in Central Park who scares him off. He's actually afraid of her. In a weird chance encounter, Kevin actually crosses paths with Marv and Harry in a crosswalk. And at the Plaza Hotel, Kevin runs into the former president, Donald Trump, who owned the plaza at the time gross and the hotel is super fancy and it's covered in high-end finishes especially for 1992 and Kevin uses his talk boy to alter his voice and make hotel accommodations with his dad's credit card over the phone. Now the receptionist of the hotel is played by Dana Ivy, who I think reminds me for whatever reason of Dame Maggie Smith. Now I mostly remember her from Rush Hour 3 when she played a nun or Legally Blonde 2 when she played a congresswoman or in The Color Purple where she played Miss Miller. <laughs> She's a little bit of a villain. Okay. But you may know her from the Adams family though. Okay. Anyway, Kevin does a bang up job of convincing her to let him into a room without an adult. Now, back in Miami, the family discovers that Kevin has his dad's bag with his wallet and credit cards. So they're going to be able to track if he uses a credit card. Now, it's at this point that the concierge, played by Tim Curry, is suspicious of the boy and orders the bellman, who's played by Rob Schneider, to do some snooping. Kevin goes up to his hotel room, which is one of the more expensive suites, and Kevin catches the bellman snooping in his bag and gives him a stick of fruit stripe gum as a tip. So some of the staff are already kind of on to Kevin. They think it's suspicious that he's there alone and rightfully so. 
Kevin goes to the indoor hotel pool where he loses his shorts. It's a cute little scene. And then later he watches the sequel to the fictional film for the first movie called Angels with Even Filthier Faces while a hotel employee makes him a Sunday. In this scene, he's ordered a lot of room service, including what looks like a cart full of chocolate confections. In the movie, you know, in this fictional movie, the main character is mad that his lady has been smooching everyone around town. So he pulls a gun on her and he says, I'm going to give you to the count of three to get your lousy lion low down four flesh and carcass out my door. One, two, and then he shoots her. Okay. And then he says, Merry Christmas, you filthy animal and a happy new year. Now I am not keen on violence against women. So I actually don't think that this part of the movie holds up that well. But just then the concierge enters the room pretending to be a housekeeper so he can snoop around and figure out like, what is this little kid doing? Going in here does he actually have an adult accompanying him like what's going on so kevin rushes to the bathroom to set up a scene where he plays the recording of his uncle singing the cool jerk in the shower and uses an inflatable clown with strings to make it look like a grown man is showering now how he set up and inflated this set up so quickly is a mystery to me did he already have the clown blown up in case i don't like did he have that much foresight he's just too smart for his own good or they are pulling our leg on how this kid is able to pull this off for this amount of time so the concierge ended up leaving the room and running off scared because he has violated the privacy of one of their customers and he feels really bad and knows that he shouldn't have been doing it all along. Back in Miami, there is torrential downpour and they have to stay in a crappy hotel. Now, motel actually. Come to find out this motel was where Frank took his wife on their honeymoon. Now, why would they take a recommendation from Frank on where to stay? This is why Google is important, okay? Y'all talk about technology being bad. You would be able to see the quality of this hotel online <laughs> if it weren't for the fact that this was 1992. I find it interesting that the family always seems to kind of get punished when they lose Kevin. I think there is an element of this family not really valuing Kevin. So them going to Miami and being miserable or them going to Paris in the previous movie and being miserable is kind of a key part of them recognizing and realizing how much they should value Kevin as a part of the family. Now, back in New York City, Kevin looks through his dad's address book. Do y'all remember address books? Before there were phones or electronic ways to keep track of addresses and phone numbers, you had to write it in a little book. And if you lost your book, you lost everything. <laughs> Jeez. That was back in the day, y'all. But in the address book, he finds that his uncle Rob, the one that lived in Paris, has a house in New York and that he might drop by. He also finds a picture of his family in his dad's bag and he thinks about them a little and you can tell that he misses them. The next day, Kevin gets his drawers dry cleaned. I don't know why hearing the bellman call them drawers was hilarious to me, but the bellman misses the opportunity to get a real cash tip because he's expecting to receive another tip in gum. But down in the lobby, the concierge apologizes profusely for walking in on who he presumed to be Kevin's dad, but Kevin is like you're not gonna see my dad for the rest of the trip okay because you walked in on him butt naked like you know you weren't supposed to do that whatever and so the hotel offers him a complimentary limo to take him to some places that he wants to go and along with the cheese pizza and the concierge who again is still very suspicious decides to process the credit card for peter in the actual machine while kevin rides around in the limo just checking out the city 
So the machine indicates that the credit card was reported stolen and the concierge does a weirdly accurate Grinch smile that is slightly terrifying. So Tim Curry has had a very interesting career. He's an icon in his own right, but I always thought that he was very scary looking. <laughs> just something about his face is just really scary looking. But people know him, of course, from Rocky Horror Picture Show. He was also in like the film Clue, which I watched a few years ago recently. And he does the voice of the dad from the Wild Thornberries, which is funny. He played Dale Biderback in Monk. I love Monk, y'all. He also played It. I mean, he's iconic or whatever, but that Grinch smile was terrifying. Anyways, at the skating rink, Marv and Harry are planning their next heist while Marv uses his sticky glove to take winter clothing from children. That part was actually very funny for him to just like have sticky fingers and just steal little gloves and, and scarves and stuff from children. That was funny to me. But Marvin Harry decide that they're going to rob a toy store because they'll have cash on hand and no one will think to look there. Nobody's thinking people are going to be robbing a toy store on Christmas. It's Christmas Eve on this particular day and Kevin visits a toy store called Duncan's Toy Chest whose kind owner, Mr. Duncan, plans to donate the day's sale proceeds to a children's hospital. Now the store is big and full of whimsy and they don't really make stores like this anymore. And Kevin praises him for having a store that allows kids to play with the toys as well as purchase them. So he was really into it. Now Marv and Harry at this point are hiding in these like child-sized or elf-sized houses where they'll remain until the store closes. Now, after Kevin makes a donation to like the little children's hospital, Mr. Duncan, who Kevin doesn't know is Mr. Duncan, gives him a pair of ceramic turtle doves in thanks, instructing him to give one to another person as a gesture of eternal friendship. After encountering the sticky bandits outside of the toy store, Kevin screams and runs off. He does a big scream and draws a lot of attention to himself. Now, Kevin is rushing back to the plaza and he ends up having to elude the concierge, Tim Curry, <laughs> as he confronts Kevin about the use of Peter's stolen credit card. Now, the scene is a little hilarious as like the sticky bandits are falling on bees and they're running into each other and the hotel employees are scrambling to try to get to Kevin as well. And Kevin returns to the hotel room to get some food and uses the audio from Angels with Even Filthier Faces to scare off the hotel employees. This scene has a little hint about Tim Curry's character having an affair with one of the security guards, which is interesting. But yeah, he ends up scaring off the hotel employees. They think they're being shot at, whatever, whatever. Kevin flees the hotel, but he ends up getting caught by the sticky bandits. So they find his plane ticket, which he was planning to use to fly to Miami and reunite with his family. And they tear up the plane ticket saying that American Airlines doesn't fly to the promised land. That was funny to me. Okay. That was a detail that I missed before. I didn't realize that Kevin was planning on leaving New York and flying to Miami to be back with his family. So them tearing it up actually was really a big monkey wrench in the plan. So Marv mentions his and Harry's plan to rob the toy store. And because Kevin is smart, he has his talk boy and he's recording this conversation before Kevin escapes by tricking a female passerby into punching the men. There is a little sexual assault in this scene and I feel like it didn't age well. Kevin like kind of pinched this woman's butt and claimed that it was the sticky bandits and that's how he manages to escape. And it's like, mm, this no, 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 didn't age well. 
<laughs> but Kevin does manage to escape. He runs and hops into the chest on the back of a horse-drawn carriage, which I think is pretty bold because who knows what's in that chest? It might be a poop shovel. Like, don't be hopping into the chest of a horse-drawn carriage. You do not know what you're getting yourself into. <laughs> But anyways, they figure that since Kevin isn't at home with all his doohickeys and gadgets and the fact that he is in Central Park alone, he isn't much of a threat. So they decide to let it go because kids are scared of the park. Saying a scared is so funny to me. I don't know. Kevin, who is alone now, you know, expresses that he wants to go home and that his little vacay without his family is not good no more. OK, I don't want to do this no more. After the police trace Peter's credit card because it was run at the hotel, the family immediately flies to New York. They were spending a miserable Christmas jam-packed into a room watching Spanish television in Miami. Like, why would y'all listen to Frank about where to get a hotel? What's wrong with y'all? Anyways, meanwhile, Kevin goes to his Uncle Rob's Upper West Side townhouse only to find it vacant and undergoing renovations. Now, the house, it didn't look under construction. It looked dilapidated. Like it had been vacant for a long time. There was holes in the ground. Am I the only one who feels like this is, They maybe they had a contractor that like just went in their house and tore stuff up. That would make sense to me. But this house looked like it had been abandoned and low-key destroyed and dilapidated. Like it wasn't just under renovations and construction or whatever. There was a lot of stuff wrong with this house, okay? The house overall, though, is big and it looks like if it was renovated, it would be quite lovely. Kevin is roaming around in New York because he couldn't go to an uncle's house and sees a lot of people who scare him, including some unhoused people, some women of the night, some people who might be dealing with some mental health issues and a very creepy taxi driver. In Central Park, Kevin again encounters and eventually befriends the pigeon lady who helps him to remove his foot from being stuck between a couple of rocks. Now, something I like about Kevin that I think we all can can learn from is that once he realizes that he's wrong about someone he can turn on a dime okay so they kind of you know become friends a little bit and she takes him to Carnegie Hall where they get a free concert up in like the attic slash storage area that's fantastic free tickets to stuff in Carnegie Hall she's living the life okay I don't mean that <laughs> I just feel like that's pretty cool to be able to like people spend lots of money on tickets to see stuff in Carnegie Hall. And if you can manage to steal your little piece of joy, go ahead. Okay. Now the pigeon lady explains how she is ignored and disregarded as an unhoused person. And Kevin feels similarly about how his family treats him. And because he's nine years old in this movie, I'm going to let him get away with comparing his privileged life to that of a woman who lives on the streets, whose only friends are pigeons. Okay. <laughs> Kevin, you can't compare yourself. Okay. Anyways, after she explains how her life collapsed when her lover left her, Kevin encourages her to trust people again. They low-key have like a little deep conversation about putting yourself out there and taking a risk with your heart. She says it's actually been like a year or two since she actually talked to anyone. She hasn't had a conversation in like a year or two. Like, can you imagine? Now they say goodbye. And Kevin stops by St. Anne's Children's Hospital that has like a star on the top that lights up. And he's been looking at this star quite a bit throughout the movie. But when he passes in front of the Children's Hospital, where Mr. Duncan is donating his Christmas Eve proceeds, he really is like, you know, these children are sick. He really feels for them. And he's like, I'm not going to let anyone steal what's theirs. So upon 
the pigeon lady's recommendation to perform a good deed to make up for all his bad ones, Kevin decides to prevent this toy store robbery so that the children at the hospital can receive their donations. So according to the pigeon lady, good deeds count for double on Christmas. So <laughs> because, you know, he has to make up for the fact that he committed credit card fraud and that he wished that his family wasn't around again. Like Kevin has been screwing up. So <laughs> that he's misappropriating his father's funds. He recognizes that he's done some wrong stuff. And it's interesting that as a child, I don't think I really grasped that. I think they maybe could have done a little bit better job of making it more apparent that Kevin had done some really wrong stuff. And if he wasn't nine, like criminal activity. <laughs> so there's a montage of Kevin rigging Uncle Rob's townhouse with booby traps per his blueprints. We see the McAllisters who are at the Plaza Hotel trying to figure out how stupid the employees have to be to let a child check into a hotel room on his own. The Plaza offers a family a large suite with a view for free and Peter decides to go to the police station while Kate decides that she's going to roam the streets looking for her son. Her maternal ferocity will keep her safe, she says. She even slaps the concierge for butting in and trying to stop her. It's midnight and Kevin catches the sticky bandits in the process of robbing the store. He takes their picture with his Polaroid camera and breaks the front window to set off the alarm. Kevin then lures the sticky bandits to the townhouse where they are repeatedly injured in the traps that he set for them. <laughs> and he actually just misses his mother who actually went to Uncle Rob's house looking for him. Some of these shenanigans include brick throwing, staples to the butt slash crotch slash face, slipping and sliding around on sticky substances, falling from decent heights, being covered in different substances, being electrocuted where Marv turns into a skeleton. That is still one of my favorite scenes to this day. Sticking a fiery head into a toilet filled with kerosene, and even a few callbacks to the first movie with the paint cans on the stairs, etc., etc. Now, even though Harry and Marv are super cautious and wary of the traps, they're still outmatched by Kevin. I also want to point out that they consistently talk about killing Kevin and even use the word S-I-S-S-Y. So yeah, not to describe Kevin, to one of them use it to describe the other. But when Kevin escapes from the house, he goes down a rope that's covered in kerosene and the sticky bandits try to follow behind him, but then he lights the rope on fire. While they are trying to figure out a way out of that situation, Kevin runs to a payphone to call the police, notifying them that the sticky bandits will be in Central Park and that they should look for the fireworks. The sticky bandits end up falling off of the rope to avoid being burned and a bunch of varnish falls on them. So they are sticky from the varnish. So we'll keep that in mind. So when he leaves for making the phone call, Kevin ends up slipping on some ice and Harry and Marv catch up with him and take him to a park where Harry gets ready to shoot the kid. But then suddenly the pigeon lady comes in with a bucket of bird seed. And when the gun doesn't work because it's covered in goo and varnish or whatever, she throws the bird seed on them and they are attacked by pigeons. Now the varnish is sticky and it that's what's keeping the bird seed attached to them. So a bunch of pigeons attack them. This scene is actually for real, for real. It's not done by stunt people. So they took one for the team on this one. I'm sure they got like a pay increase for the second movie. <laughs> I don't know if you could pay me to be attacked by pigeons on film. I don't know. But anyways, Kevin sets off some fireworks in the area and the police arrive to find them being attacked by the pigeons. Kevin leaves behind the evidence 
where it's a voice tape of Marv recounting the plan and giving the police even more evidence as Marv keeps running his mouth to them about the fact that they are fugitives and they escape from prison and all that kind of stuff. So Marv and Harry are going back to jail, y'all. And so Mr. Duncan, the owner of the toy store, recovers all the donation money, finding a note from Kevin explaining the incident. Kate, who is still running the streets looking for her son, contacts a police officer who advises her to put herself in her son's shoes. She hitches a ride with the police to Rockefeller Center where the giant Christmas tree is because she figures Kevin loves Christmas trees. He has to be there. And she's right. Kevin is there repenting for his bad deeds and wishes to see his family again and an opportunity to apologize to his mom. And just then she shows up. His wish was granted and they apologize to each other and they hug it out for the second time. Now, on Christmas morning, young Fuller, who hasn't mastered his nighttime bladder, has a huge bed to himself. <laughs> He's young and still hopeful that Santa will deliver gifts to his hotel room. It's interesting because Fuller called Santa omnipresent, saying that even though they weren't home or wherever they thought they would be having Christmas, that Santa would come and find them anyway. I think that's an actually interesting concept. But to everyone's surprise, a truckload of free gifts arrived at the McAllister's hotel room and they were sent from a grateful Mr. Duncan for foiling the robbery. Now, somehow the hotel employees managed to fill this room with a decorated Christmas tree. The Christmas tree could have already been there, right? But also a truckload full of presents while everybody was asleep. These employees are magical, okay? I don't know what that kind of customer service feels like. <laughs> For someone to be able to be in your room, provide you with a bunch of presents, not make any noise, not wake anybody up, and you wake up and the presents are just there. How pleasant. Okay. A little scary, but pleasant. So Buzz is nice enough in all of the kind of excitement of the moment to let Kevin open the first gift. So he throws the first gift to Kevin. But then they all dig in anyway. Kevin barely got the paper off, like barely un undid one piece of tape before they all started digging in. What was the whole point of you stopping the action to say thanks to Kevin and let him open the first gift if y'all were just going to dig in anyway? Kevin didn't even open his gift. He snuck away to give one of his turtle doves that he received from Mr. Duncan to the pigeon lady, cementing their friendship. And while he's there with her saying like, we'll always be friends, Peter, his dad, yells at him from the hotel room for amassing a $967 room service bill. The room service bill indicates that he spent almost $1,000 on two chocolate cakes, six chocolate mousses with chocolate vanilla and strawberry ice cream topped with M&Ms, chocolate sprinkles, cherries, nuts, marshmallows, caramel syrup, chocolate syrup, strawberry syrup, whipped cream and bananas, six custard flans, a pastry cart, eight strawberry tarts and 36 chocolate covered strawberries. $967 in 1992 is more than $2,000 today. <laughs> So he racked up, if it were 2023, a $2,000 room service bill. My, yeah, my parents would lose their minds too. That's the end of Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. Here are some of my preliminary thoughts as I'll be sharing more when I compare the two movies in just a bit. Is it worth a rewatch? And does it hold up today? Yes, and mostly yes. I really enjoyed rewatching the movie. It had all the magic of Christmas in New York City and all the wonder of being a kid with money on a solo vacation and all that additional magic. Kevin is super smart and manages to navigate the city pretty well for a nine-year-old, like way better than I probably ever would. We get to meet his old foes, Harry and Marv, as well as some new ones like the hotel staff. Unlike the first movie, Kevin's separation from his family seems to be an honest mistake, but definitely could have been prevented. Now, 
know, there were a few things that didn't age well in this movie. Harry and Marv talk a lot about murdering a nine-year-old. Kevin inappropriately touches a woman's butt on the streets. They use the word S-I-S-S-Y in a derogatory manner. A woman is murdered in angels with even filthier faces. <laughs> so there are just like a few moments that really didn't age well. But overall, the movie holds up for me. I remember wanting to go to New York around Christmas time. Just something about it seemed magical considering how I grew up in Texas and basically never saw the snow in the winter. So like probably six or seven years ago, me, my husband and another couple went to New York during New Year's and there is nothing magical about how cold it is. We had a good time, but we freezed our butts off doing it. So I guess I achieved that. I guess I achieved that goal. <laughs> so the critics over at Rotten Tomatoes gave Home Alone 2 lost in New York, uh, 35%, while the audience gave it 62%. Now I'll talk more about that now with the comparison. Now let's compare the two movies. In my experience, lots of people like the sequel more than the original, which is why the Rotten Tomatoes reviews are actually a little astounding to me. The first movie had a score of 65 from the critics and 80 from the audience, while the second movie had a critic score of 35 and an audience score of 62. I feel like the results, that astounds me. I feel like just anecdotally, whenever I talk to people about these two movies, people really love the second one more. So I feel a little bit shocked by that, by the results. But um, I also feel like the results are low for both films. And yeah, I feel like when we think about sequels and what they have to do to be seen as better than the original, we usually have to think about the storyline advancing in a way that feels logical and that adds value to the franchise. We think about an increased quality and budget that improves the overall look and feel of the film and just overall taking things up a notch. In my research, I realized something that was noted a few times. You can really argue that Home Alone 2 could have been its own movie and not a sequel. Home Alone 2 could have been Home Alone 1 if they just removed the history of the wet bandits. If you introduce these two characters and them not knowing Kevin or interacting with him in the first movie, this could have been Home Alone 1. So for me, this diminishes the added value that we're supposed to get from a sequel. After watching both of these films, I think my opinion on which one is better may be a little altered. Let me explain. In the first movie, the story is really about Kevin growing up and becoming more independent. It's about him learning to value his family and defending his home. In the second movie, it's about him growing up in a different way, learning from his mistakes, doing good deeds, and using his privilege to help others. Both messages are really good. And when we think about the settings of each film, that's what makes the biggest difference to me. His home versus a strange town like New York City. Now, while being able to navigate a huge town on his own is technically more impressive than him being at the house, I do love the charm and the contrast of him having access and freedom in his own house. When it comes to the shenanigans and the stunts and the traps and stuff, I do think they were taken up a notch in the sequel. I also think that the resolution at the end of the sequel had a bigger bang than the first movie because Kevin's whole family gets rewarded for his good deeds. I think though that because the first movie was more focused on Kevin's personal growth that it feels more impactful to me and it feels like him reuniting with his family and growing up was its own reward. Now in previous years I would have vehemently said that the sequel was better but I actually think I like them equally. The added budget and enhancements in the sequel are lovely but they actually take away a little bit of the charm for me. So that places the films on equal footing. So I used to think like the second one was way better, but now that I really think about it and think about how there wasn't a whole bunch of value added for me in the second one beyond the flash and enhanced budget, they're basically, 
eye to eye for me. All in all, I enjoyed both movies about the same and I suggest you give them a watch during the holiday season if you want some early 90s nostalgia and to get a look at why Macaulay Culkin deserves that star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Thanks for tuning into this special extended original versus sequel episode of Sup Media Reviews, where I compared Home Alone and Home Alone 2 Lost in New York. Did you rewatch these movies recently? Which one do you prefer? Please share your thoughts on these two movies on our social media pages on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. This is the last review of the year, y'all. I have learned and grown so much throughout this podcast, and I'm so happy about what it's evolved into, and I'm even more excited to see where the new year takes Sup Media Reviews. And the first first episode of 2024 will be ending our holiday movie series with a review of Elf, which celebrated its 20th anniversary in November of 2023. You don't want to miss it. Peace out. Thanks for listening to Sub Media Reviews. I hope you enjoyed our trip down memory lane just as much as I did. If you have any suggestions for movies or TV shows you'd like me to review next, or if you just want to share your thoughts on today's episode, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Pinterest at Sub Media Reviews and on SubMediaReviews.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you have a moment, please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your feedback helps me improve the show and spread the word to new listeners. So until next time, peace out, home slices. Peace out.